0: and listen in to her warm Scottish tones, wise heart, and wonderful sense of humour as she interviews guests and discusses what it means to be unashamedly human. Hi everyone and welcome to the Unashamedly Human podcast. My name is Jackie Ford and today I have with me a very, very special lady that I've known for a very long time. Um, I, I, I dread to think how many years we've known each other, Helen,
1: about 20? Uh, I think it's about, well, near that, 16 maybe. Yeah. Something like 16, 17.
0: Long time. Yeah, long, long, long. The the thing I love about life is every now and again, you meet someone whose story is so similar to your own that you just think, were we separated at
1: birth? (laughs) I know. know? know. (laughs) But don't you think it's that thing that we were sitting in a room... This is what I always find really strange. What there must have been eight hundred people in that room. That's right. This is
0: one of the NLP trainings with Richard Bandler. Yeah,
1: eight hundred people, and we sat next to each other. Mm. And it's that—that's what all. It doesn't always work, but nine times out of ten, I always end up next to the person I'm meant to be sitting next to.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So, anyway, you're going to hear just how lovely Helen is throughout this podcast. Today, we've got again a slightly different topic. Um, I'm doing a series of podcasts on food, food addiction, eating, anorexia, binge eating, just to give people, you know, just a different take on what these mean to different, you know, to different souls. And I wanted to speak to Helen because I know that Helen agrees with me that all change happens through insight. You know, you can have all the intellectual knowledge in the world possible, but until you have an insight into your behaviour, then your behaviour doesn't change. So Helen is a lady with a, a, a long track record of transformation. Like me, Helen was a nurse. So she's been in service to people all of her life, which I, I just love. And and having done that work Helen and being a nurse and being a midwife it really does it helps us so much when we're working with clients because our intuition and our empathy and our compassion and our ability to to converse and talk with people has been finely tuned over decades without us even trying absolutely to change it yeah and the reason I wanted to ask Helen to come along and speak in the podcast about this issue around food, it's not an issue to talk about food, um, is because Helen is is working with people in this area and just getting the most interesting and exciting results. And she has her, her own way of doing it that I'm I'm hoping that she'll explain to us throughout the podcast. So buckle up, Yersi sit down and um, I hope you enjoy this podcast. Helen, it's an absolute joy to have you here. We keep trying and we've actually got together today, which is, you know. We have, wonderful. we have. Thank you. Can you tell people just a wee bit about you, Helen? I've mentioned you
1: were a nurse, but if you can tell people about your journey. Um, so, yeah, I started um, my work life as a um, state registered nurse and in paediatrics. Um, And then actually interestingly found that once I had my first child, I couldn't actually, it changed my emotional attachment. And I actually found it too challenging. I don't know if the health service is any different today, but back then there was no, I'd say no compassion, no kindness towards those delivering Mm -hmm. often very, very challenging and traumatic um, services. So um, I went into the community, became practice nurse, family planning sister, probably failed about, managed to have four children. Um, <laughs> That's what you <laughs> for not listening way, to you, you don't you? Yeah, did not listen to my own advice. And actually, it was when I had my fourth son, which was the, it was 1999. So that January in the millennium, as it started, I knew I didn't, I was teaching at the time. And I knew I didn't want to work for anyone else again um and certainly not in the nhs or the education sector because too much of it frustrated me Mm -hmm. so and i knew i didn't want to do therapy i knew i wanted to be forward-facing and i'd never heard of coaching but there was an article about coaching in the observer in january 20 no not 2020 oh lord what was it 2000 showing my age anyway and i just thought oh my god this has my name written on it so i went off and trained as a coach. And then, um, while I was coaching, people kept talking about NLP, neuro-linguistic programming. And I essentially probably right in the center of me is I'm nosy. I'm, I'm incredibly nosy and I want to know what everyone's talking about. So I researched it and found Bandler and McKenna and, um, I went and trained and that's where we met. Mm -hmm. Um, are you still there? I'm still here, hun. Yeah, I can hear you, Helen. You, your picture's not moving, but I can oh, okay. hear you. sorry, you froze. So, oh, okay, sorry, sorry. Okay, not great with tech. Um, anyway, so I um, trained in NLP, which is where we met. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I to fast forward. I, you know, I set up my own practice, coaching in NLP. Alongside that, the other part of my journey is probably I'm 60. Probably from the age of five, I became aware that I was not okay because I didn't look like the people around me wanted me to look like. So the narrative really was um, that I was too fat, that I couldn't eat that. Um, And really from a very young age, I don't remember, I'm not saying it's true, but I don't remember ever putting my hand out for food and being told I couldn't have it or I shouldn't have it. So it was a theme going through and I was put on my first diet at the age of 11. And I can still remember starting secondary school, going in with a cup of soup and two rye beaters, Mm. watching everyone else eat sandwiches and crisps, which of course I did eat. But, you know, the story when no one was looking and it sort of set up a theme for my personal and professional. With actually this curiosity and um that if eating less and moving more was all you needed to do how come it was really really not working for most people most of the time mm-hmm. so um for years i, I researched and, you know, I personally done every diet that was ever written by mankind. Then roll on sort of parallel with my own life. And of course, when I look back, I wasn't fat. That's the irony to all that's of this. So the way <laughs>
0: that's, the, um, that's
1: the joke. Yeah, that's the real irony to all of this mm. is that I don't know what it was all about, but that's for another day. Anyway, so. Lots and lots and lots of research. I then went to work in-house for um, a uh, major in-house weight weight loss company. I became increasingly frustrated there. Coaching and NLP did add something and they're valuable tools. So what I do now is a mixture of a mush, is my technical word, of coaching, NLP, um, positive psychology because I went on to do a master's in um, applied positive psychology Mm -hmm. and part of that um, course my my central piece of research was self-compassion and shame resilience but to roll back a few years whilst I was at that weight management company the only thing that really was like coming home as I went to a day's um Dietitian seminar i think it was and spent all day listening to people presenting their research that basically hadn't worked so that was you know the thing i love about researchers still think it's valuable to tell you about their research even when there's nothing helpful discovered but hey the last person and they'd given him 30 minutes was a guy called paul gilbert professor paul gilbert um, created for want of a better word something called compassion focused therapy mm-hmm. and he was the first person i heard talk about self-compassion and in that moment i'm sure you've experienced this many times but in that moment i just thought that's it
0: it's that greener truth isn't it helen and it
1: feels I mean, like it was, home. it was even more than that mm-hmm. that it was it, it the, the way he spoke If you could have been there, it was a day of listening to people talking about eat less, move more, eat less, move more, eat less, move more. It's a really struggle. People can't do it. Exercise doesn't really help people lose weight. In fact, people get fatter because, you know, they eat, they overestimate what the exercise they've done and they link exercise to a weight loss goal. So when they don't lose weight, they get fed up. So they stop exercising and literally the most depressing day. And then he came on and went, actually, very subtle. It's not about any of that. Mm. So I then continue to do the work that I do and did a dissertation exploring why diets don't work. Because I sort of instinctively knew it can't just be me. Um, and the research is they don't work. Or, more accurately, they don't work for very long. Mm-hmm. So the research shows that The surface level, people go on a diet, be really motivated, lose weight. If you do research at the three month point, you will think diets work. People have lost weight, got to their ideal weight, they're rah, rah, rah. For that brief moment in time, it looks like the myth was true. Life is now wonderful, because they're eight stone and in a size 10 dress and they're getting loads and loads of compliments. And for a brief moment in time, it looks like the lie was a truth. Mm -hmm. that when your thin life is wonderful of course it's bollocks excuse (laughs) me anyway if you roll on most people within a year regardless of the diet there's no one diet that is um more or less at fault if you like
0: Mm -hmm.
1: across the board roll on a year the research shows most people not only will have regained but they will have regained more Mm -hmm. so This isn't okay. And what my research actually showed that unlike other areas within the health industry diets and dieting is not held to the same rigorous research. So the research is out there clearly says as an intervention, it's pretty useless. Mm -hmm. And yet if you go today, if a human being goes today to a GP or a health professional and gets weighed, they will be handed a diet sheet. Now, I get that people will say, you know, people have this time constraints, it wouldn't matter. They would still be handed a diet sheet. And I was at the gym last week and there was this very enthusiastic personal trainer, almost at the top of his voice, shouting at this elderly gentleman, what you need to do five days a week, six days a week, no carbs, protein only. And on the seventh day, eat what you like, shove it in. I'm thinking, on what planet? Can you not hear yourself? First of all, if all the foods that you're telling this person to eat on a Sunday, don't nourish his body with kindness, why is it okay to shove them in on a Sunday? So I did this research. I have to tell you, it was the saddest research I have ever done. Oh, how come? Because paper after paper after paper after paper reaffirmed what I already knew. Mm -hmm. But actually, not only don't diets work, they create great harm and great pain and great suffering. Because for some reason... And I'm not sure how it came about. It's very unique in that it's probably the only service industry that offers you an intervention that doesn't work and manages to convince you, the user, that it's your fault.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, I can't think of anywhere else that anybody would go. You can go on holiday and get shit food and an awful experience and be persuaded that actually the reason you had an awful experience was because of something to do with you. There is a collusion that if you've gone a diet and you don't manage, then you are a failure, not the diet. Mm-hmm. You need to have more willpower. That you, the user, are... Well, the adjectives that the person themselves uses are horrendous. From disgusting, a failure, useless, a waste of space not worthy, not lovable, Um, and of course we have all the wonderful before and after photos where this person, because the before photo, the person's always miserable, aren't they? Mm. The after photo, the sun is now shining, so the message is really clear. If you want to live your best life, if you want to live your happiest life, you've got to knuckle down because it's not going to happen until you look like that. And it's the challenge is, the message the weight in the food, the weight industry, the diet industry, that mess, it's a shame-based industry. Any intervention that they've measured the cortisol levels of people waiting to be weighed and they're through the roof. Now, as you know, cortisol is what released, is what is released when we're under great threat and stress. Mm-hmm. So the cue to get weighed is people's stress levels are through the roof, people will strip off they'll take their jewellery off, they'll go to the toilet to try and push something out of their body. It's through roof. So they... um... Okay, so picking up on the shame angle, what the research showed, and the reason I'm looking at this problem, or this challenge from the different end of the telescope, because most interventions, and it... (laughs) talk about the food eventually so you pick up a book that says this isn't a diet book and there'll be recipes in them <laughs> well it will be then people talk about you need that somebody needs to have a better relationship with food no they don't I've not met anybody who needs to have a warm and loving relationship with a loaf of bread <laughs> <laughs> not food. even if it's sourdough Helen <laughs> sourdough yeah sourdough with with um with bacon maybe <laughs> reality is yes of course we need to learn to nourish ourselves with kindness what my research did was look at something called chronic dieting syndrome mm-hmm. a chronic dieting syndrome it's not clinical but it is a uh, people whose lifestyle is completely dominated by um what they look like what they weigh uh what they're going to eat um and It doesn't matter what else is going on. It'll be their first thought when they wake up in the morning, the last thought before they go to bed. Been there. Yeah, me too. Been there, done it, got the Mm t-shirt. Wouldn't matter what else was going on. What would be really front of mind is what have I eaten, why did I eat that? Now, why I feel really sad about this is that not only is there a collusion between the weight and diet industries, the people using the diets themselves, the people who keep churning them out... But society itself perpetuates this message that actually women need to look a certain way in order to be okay. End of. The challenge with that when we look at shame is if we roll back to when we were living in a cave, which our brain still thinks we are, um, our... The most, you know, we needed to stay alive, so we stayed alive by two ways. I mean, I wasn't there, but so I'm making. You, are up. you sure, Helen? Are yeah, you I'm sure? making <laughs> this up a bit. Um, but basically, we had to have food, and in order to get the food, we needed to not be eaten by the food.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then the other thing is, we were in a tribe. Research says a tribe of no more than about 120 people. And um, it was really important in that tribe that we were accepted, which meant there were rules. I'm guessing they were transparent. We knew what they were. And what Paul Gilbert says is shame in that context could be seen as safekeeping or pro-social because if I started to act out against the tribe, this shame, you'd respond to me in such a way that I'd feel shame and change my behavior back. Because if I didn't, you would chuck me out of the cave and I literally, mm-hmm. my life was at risk. Yeah. I could literally die. So not belonging is coded in the part of our brain that is responsible for keeping us safe as high risk. Now roll on to 2020. First of all, our shames are disparate. Our rules are not transparent. And if you spend too much time on social media, you really don't know who and what and how you're supposed to be. And you're comparing yourself what you look like, and the life you're living with the curated views of other people's lives. Mm. More importantly than that, we're in a tribe, and I'm i not saying that this isn't a male issue only. I'm specifically looking at women. But we are in a tribe called women, and the message for decades has been, for a woman to be safe and worthy of love and belonging, she needs to look a certain way. It's perpetuated across all the media. In movies, the heroine is skinny and beautiful, and the baddie is well. She may well be beautiful, you know what I mean? Stealthy. yeah,
0: or the funny one, the baddie or the funny one is
1: they won't fit that. that yeah. They won't fit that Barbie look, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, in so the baddie, the funny one, the mother type, the only woman that fits that caricature of being acceptable, the one who gets, gets the guy, gets the riches, looks a certain way. If you open any newspaper, if you read books, you will get the idea that in order to be safe and worthy of love and belonging in this tribe of women, you have to look a certain way. What I find so sad is that has been accepted in society, nobody questions it. Women will sit down together with a group of women, and within 10 minutes, when the menu comes out, something about dieting will come up. Now you can always guess the person who has the biggest issues because they talk about how they're gonna order. Well, I can eat this because I didn't have breakfast and I won't have supper tonight, and they didn't eat very much yesterday, or I'm being good, or I'm being bad. Um, The diet culture will leak out. Very few women, if you you listen to groups of women sitting at a table about to order, will just pick up the menu, look at what they want and order it without some kind of external explanation or justification about what they're eating. I cannot tell you the amount of times I've chosen a salad and somebody around the table will say to me, are you trying to be good? (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Are you trying to be good? No, actually... (laughs) First of all, it, first of all, the joke of it, the big joke of it is for years, people would buy, because I am, you know, on all angles of this, I'm pretty much an expert in my own way, that, that people for years would go to, to a famous pizza chain and order a salad rather than a pizza until they realized when they shared the calories that actually the salad was more calorific because the certain ingredient was delivered in oil and the dressing, mm. so it, But my point is there will be a comment. There will be, now what the research shows is that all that fat talk, and that's what it is, fat and diet talk, what it does is raises the part of the brain that's responsible for keeping us safe, which is called the amygdala, but most people understand it from fight and flight. It actually activates it. So if you even have a different image that we have a part of our brain, and in that brain is sitting our security guard, or whatever you want to call them. And and I'm very, very thankful. And they're sitting there to keep us safe. They're coding all the time for threat. The challenge is this brain of ours hasn't actually changed from the cave. And so that has been developed to protect us from a physical threat to a man-eating tiger, something that was going to kill us. So when the code red is hit, what happens is this is really briefly all kinds of changes happen in our body because the brain is preparing for us to go and either run away from something or kill it. so there's certain places that we don't need um, so much energy and for the body energy is oxygen and sugar. so we don't need a lot in our brain because I'm not going to sit and have a committee meeting before I kill this tiger right <laughs> We don't need our digestion get sluggish because I'm not going to say to this tiger. <laughs> I'm going to make myself um, a high fiber, high protein sandwich so I've got the energy to keep it. <laughs> um, And I'm just going to go. So I need all that energy in my arms and my legs. I need to have. Hum- so it's all diverted. Mm-hmm. Okay. In the cave, that would have been a one off. It yeah. was a physical threat. And I would have either died, in which case, no problem, mm-hmm. or um, lived. And then what I do, and this is where it relates to the food, is then refeed. Sluggish tummy, used all this energy. But briefly speaking, this is really generalising, you then refeed. Mm. Roll on to today and look at chronic dieting. Mm -hmm. The threats that are coded are not physical. Mm -hmm. They're psychological. And they're ever-present. Why? Because when you get into the head of the client population I'm talking about, which is sadly most women in our hemisphere, they are very self-critical. We'll often start the day by looking in the mirror and being vile. Now what we know to be true is the brain doesn't recognize the difference between an external criticism and internal criticism, the security guard hears the attack and stands up. So as Kristin Neff, who is a leading researcher in self-compassion says, we become our own man-eating tiger. We become our biggest threat, and we've got no idea that that's what we're doing. And the internal shaming about our bodies has become so insidious and acceptable. It's right you beat yourself up. It's right you tell yourself you're disgusting. Because if you don't, how are you ever going to lose weight?
0: Mm.
1: I've literally had clients say to me, if I don't remind myself every day how fat and vile I am, I might forget and then I won't lose weight. And this is after 30, 40 years of dieting and getting fatter. And it's kind of the question, well, how has it been working for you so far? Mm-hmm. It doesn't. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes total sense, and, Helen, and I'm and sure
0: lots of people listening will understand that, you know. It, and it's get
1: it. and that's, it's, it's why I find it so sad. Mm-hmm. We, we look at the numbers of um, overweight and obese that they measure. Um, that's a lot of the population, We look at the percentages of people at any given time that are on a diet. That's a lot of the population. So, before people are dealing with any other stresses in their life, they are dealing with the fact that they are their own worst bully. Food becomes, there's a word, something that causes you stress is called a stressor. So, basically, what happens is their body. And your body is you. So I say to people, if you say, I like me, but I don't like my body, it doesn't actually work like that. You don't get to separate it. Your brain doesn't think, okay, you like you, but you don't like your body. Well, which part of you is not your body? Mm. Because the brain, which is thinking that thought, is your body. There's no separation. I know when we trained as at nurse, and I'm sure you were the same, we were talking about our psychological self, our social self, our emotional self, our physical self. And I think people believe it, but we're not. We're one, we're a source of energy. And we know, for instance, with kinesiology, um, that what we say to ourselves literally weakens us or strengthens us at a cellular level. Absolutely, Helen. So when, it- Go on.
0: <laughs> Just going to say, you know, that the part of how you know sort of I teach people, you know, about their about who they are as human beings is there's this essence, this this spiritual energy, and there's also this psychological idea of who you think you are.
1: Absolutely. And it's
0: about you know living a life well lived is being able to to live with with both of these as one because they are one, but we separate them out because that's what we've been taught to do
1: yes and I think what is even sadder is that the the stories the narratives that we walk around in that we where they've come from is you know manifold um that that you're not enough because dot 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 you know something called the scarcity mindset people are not I don't deserve this, I don't deserve to be happy because I'm fat, I don't deserve to be happy because I'm ugly, I don't deserve to be happy because I'm stupid. Whatever made-up story, people don't realise they've made it up. Yeah, I know. It isn't true. And what it does, eventually, is that essence gets covered up. Now, I don't, I don't think it's covered up for the reasons that people think it's covered up. I think there's a kind of, a, sometimes we think we're covering up, because we think what's underneath is so revolting, we can't possibly let the world see. Sometimes I think that that's another story that we've told ourselves. I think we've covered it up. Robert Holden, who was probably one of the first researchers in happiness. I was at a training with him once and he talked about covering ourselves up with post-it notes. So I can't do that. That's not safe. No, I'm not good enough because I'm like this. No, I can't do that. No, I mustn't eat that. No, I mustn't do that. And in the end, we get so covered with post-it notes, we actually forget what's underneath.
0: I love that, Helen. Can I tell you why I love that? Because in this understanding of the principles that you know I share, to me, each of those post-it notes is a thought that's believed, a thought that's embodied. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And,
1: and it's a bit like, you know, whether believing in Father Christmas or believing that the, the world is flat. Whilst we believe them mm. wholeheartedly, there's no looking for evidence that actually, what if it's not true? Yeah. What if it's possible that the story I made up about myself a long, long time ago, the stories that other, others are invested in me still believing, because they make billions and billions of dollars. Of course, yeah. So basically, um, I then came across another researcher called Brene Brown. Brene Brown is a, uh, the most amazing. <laughs> well, I, well, I She's amazing for many reasons. A, because she's this, when I did my research, I found very few researchers like her and Kristin Neff who applied their research
0: mm.
1: and who came. They didn't talk about, many researchers talk about the research for others, not them. There are others, other humans who are vulnerable. There are other humans. Do you know, I think some coaches do that too. Oh, I know. <laughs> a that, you know, who are not prepared to go. Yes, me too.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and what I loved about her, is not only is her, her, work is embodied and embraced in the, in the lived experience of thousands of other people. You know, she isn't somebody who had an experience, it worked for her, therefore she wrote a book. Um, She's literally done the legwork, mm-hmm. but it just resonates. And she started to talk about shame in a way that I'd, and that for me, I knew I'd experienced a lot of shame. I know what my shame triggers are. But actually, like anybody who's eaten food while no one's looking, who any person on a diet, when somebody turns around and said, oh, I thought you were being good. Mm. How come you're eating that? Mm. To find someone who's written and put a language to something that is so soul-destroying. Because the reality is that shame however you experience it, whatever it means to that individual, loves silence. And when, as Renee Brown describes it as being in a pet tradition growing, Mm. the more the person doesn't talk about their shame, the more shame grows, and the more embodied in their story it becomes. Speak it, and all of a sudden, in the presence of empathy, in the presence of somebody says, I'm here, I'm listening, I get it.
0: This is what I love about your work, Helen. You know, you, you, you go by the name of the self-compassion coach. And I'm hearing this throughout the thread of this, you know, of you talking from the beginning right up to this point. And I'd love you to explain to people why that's important, especially people who are holding on to shame. Um, In relation to food?
1: Because if you look at it just from a physiological point of view, um, when we are in high levels of stress and threat, when we experience shame, shame um, acts like a trauma in the brain and activates the threat system. Ultimately, that will lead to eating. And not because of comfort eating and not because of all the other reasons, but because the body is designed when it is under threat and it thinks it's going to fight and flight. It needs to refeed. It needs to regain its um, energy packs, if you like, its energy source. Can,
0: so- I ask, can I ask you a quick question, Helen? Did you ever find when you were seeing a lot of clients and you were using NLP that you were hungrier after working with your clients? Yes. Good. Because <laughs> so, I did too.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And actually, the other thing I find, and still if I don't pay attention, is if I've, if I've um, seen a lot of clients without enough space and haven't sat and done any breath work, I mm-hmm. go into the kitchen. The first thing I always want to say to people this is not their fault. Mm-hmm. This is because there's so much guilt. The problem with dieting, the diet mentality is very good and bad. So the person doesn't tend to go, I've eaten a piece of chocolate cake. Oh, that might have been a bad thing, using their language. They go, I've eaten a piece of chocolate cake. I am a bad thing. Yeah, they personalize guilt, it. They personalise it. Shame is guilt is I did a I did a not I did a bad behavior for want of a better mm-hmm. word. Shame is, I am bad. Yeah,
0: but see if you think about that, Helen.
1: Our generation
0: and generations before us, our parents and the way they were parenting—that was their language. You are bad. You know that. That's a. It wasn't. I love you, but I don't like what you've done. No,
1: and it wasn't. And it's the but, you see. And Mm -hmm. even if it is, it's being able to go. I love you. I I love you, and exactly. So the, the challenge is that, and of course, the process that I'm talking about is it's not peculiar to mm-hmm. only chronic dieting. We all do this. This is oh, yeah. what humans are doing to themselves without realizing it. Because I don't know about you, no, school, from my experience, the school was a shame-based organization. It was only about shaming. And it's very subtle. It, well, school wasn't subtle, but it's everywhere. Anywhere you put another person in competition with another person... There is this risk of activating shame. So let's go into your average diet group where a bunch of women are being weighed publicly and um, being found wanting because they don't get that extra star in their book. These are grown, intelligent, creative women who no other area of their life would they keep going back. They'd go, oh, this isn't working. Let me look at a different strategy. Mm -hmm. So basically the reason that self-compassion and shame resilience ends up turning this on its head is because my mission isn't about, I'm not really bothered whether people lose weight or not. That's not really my um, agenda. My agenda is that my clients learn to be kinder to themselves And as a side effect of that, they will, because you can't help it, eventually become slimmer. Because my instinct is, in the end, what is much worse for someone's health is chronic stress than being overweight, if that makes sense.
0: Oh, it completely makes sense. The
1: toxicity, the toxicity of of, um, continual bullying, Look, we wouldn't put up with it in the workplace if somebody external to us is walking around going, oh, my God, am I allowed to swear, by the way, on here? Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Right, so (laughs) if you went to work and somebody... If somebody went to work and everywhere they went, so they go into the toilet and someone behind them goes, oh, God, you're a fucking fat cow. Look at that face. Who do you think? And why did you think you should wear that today? And look at that. And what are you wearing? And then all that internal dialogue what are you going to eat for lunch? You can't eat that, you're too fat, but I really want it. It's all that, their bodyguard is exhausted because they're continually activating their threat system. If that was external, you'd go to HR. Mm-hmm. That person would be sacked. You wouldn't allow it. Why? Because we know that people who are chronically bullied end up becoming very anxious, very stressed, and ultimately very depressed. It is no different... When we do it internally, the results are the same. So their world becomes a cruel, cruel world. You know, I've worked with people that won't go on um reunions because they're fat, they don't want to meet up, they don't want to go to weddings. Their first thought if someone says they booked a holiday, is they're the wrong weight, said somebody invented something called a bikini body, love to meet that person, don't know where they got to rule the world. When you basically Self-compassion teaches you three things. The three components, um, as described by Christine is one is mindfulness. Not just the formal practice, which is important, but becoming mindful, because we can't change what we're not aware of. I have clients in my room where I'm constantly saying, just need to pause, that was really nasty what you just said to yourself. You just called yourself an idiot. You just did, did, did. would you say that? No, so I will interrupt as many times as I need because it's insidious, yeah, and invisible, yeah, yeah. We just it's acceptable, mm-hmm. it? so we basically um learn to become more mindful and mindful. Also, it's just this moment, it's just this moment of suffering, it's not it doesn't have to be pervasive and permanent, it's now. Let's stay, don't make it bigger than it is. Um, moving from self-criticism to learning to be kind changing the response and a lot of the self-compassion work is coming out of the head and going to the body which in a way is a bit different from coaching and NLP sometimes because instead of going into the head necessarily and identifying the thoughts and what's causing it is go to the body where do you feel that struggle where do you feel that suffering and hold it and soothe it like you would a child. You don't always need to know where it's coming from. When our children were little pre-language, we were still able to soothe them Mm -hmm. long before they were able to specifically say where or why they were hurting. And the other thing that I think is as critical as the other two is this sense of common humanity. It's not just me who has flaws, who's imperfect who screws up, makes mistakes. I'll probably listen back to this and think, oh my God, what did I say that for? I meant to say that. It's all of us, it's not just me, and it's not just you, but it's all of us. We all fuck up, we're human. If we were the Vulcans, I don't know if you remember Star Trek.
0: Oh, I I'm, 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 I'm all fine. <laughs>
1: So, you know, if we were you know, the Vulcans were not like us. They were rational. They had no mm-hmm. emotions. We wouldn't be having this talk and nor would we have any work because um, they just wouldn't compute. But you and I both know the only part of our brain, our conscious mind, that holds a tiny amount of information, it's the only rational bit. The rest of it is literal and purposeful. Whatever I've coded in there, it believes. So it's so important that, because we don't grow up knowing it's someone else as well, because everyone has their armour on pretending they're okay. Yeah. Because our daily experience is one of knowing, of avoiding vulnerability as described by Brene Brown, which is, you know, it's unavoidable. You can't not have it. People use it, the words, so as if you can choose to be vulnerable you can't choose uncertainty you can't choose the risk of emotional exposure it's what we live with because we were born we know that and at some point we'll die but we don't know when we risk uncertainty from second to second you know why was i anxious a bit nervous talking to you because all of a sudden there's an audience And I don't know. It's the story. What if they think what I'm saying is rubbish? What if I say the wrong thing? You know, it runs, it's there, but it's the awareness that goes and all will be well. That's okay. Some people might like what I say. Some people may not. And that's okay. But knowing that most people doing something like this, and maybe for the first time, will probably feel a little bit nervous. I did a keynote speech in the summer for, for, um, a company it was the biggest audience i've ever spoken to and one of the directors said to me about two minutes before i went are you nervous and i went no i'm absolutely terrified <laughs> he looked at me and he said well first i'm really surprised and secondly i'm really grateful for your honesty because and especially when it comes to the world of dieting and the world of um our bodies we're very secretive
0: mm-hmm.
1: so the shame grows so i don't know if i answered the question you asked me you did you did you're you're
0: explaining why self-compassion is important because without self-compassion and that willingness to look inside to understand and make visible the stories and the thoughts and the ideas and the conditioning and the coding and then we don't get an opportunity to grow to evolve
1: but when it comes to food, if we make it about the food, then we're following someone else's understanding of what our body needs.
0: Yeah.
1: We don't learn to nourish ourselves with kindness in a way that is authentic for us. We don't learn to treat ourselves as our own best friend. Mm. When we're able to do that, our security guard sits down and has a cup of tea and says, thank God, I can have a rest. Mm. And the system breathes and is calm. And so all the eating that happens as a response to threat disappears. Now, there are many, many reasons that we may eat and we could talk for hours. But right now, I'm interested in providing an antidote to the bullying the shaming, the harshness, the belittling, the the, the the stigmatization that the person themselves does a lot worse than anybody outside would ever do. Yeah. it's coming it's knowing that this is an inside out job and it starts with kindness. It doesn't start with somebody telling you to not eat carbs. I'm not saying that there's great we're living in a time where there's beautiful food where we're born. We're blessed, but oh, where's the joy and the nourishment gone? To eat without guilt, too. we were talking about sourdough the other day, weren't we? Yeah. (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful. Where bread suddenly became the, you know, the joker to Batman, I have no idea. But, you know, the nourishment, to nourish. You know, I teach people to be grateful for every part of their body. They don't have to like their body. There may be imperfections and flaws. um, But when you get this link with common humanity, that it's not just me that struggles, everyone struggles sometimes, and it doesn't need to be compared because thankfully there is an infinite amount of compassion. If there was only five ounces of compassion, yeah, we'd have to get into a queue and justify Mm. why we had some. But actually there's an infinite amount and it's, Paul Gilbert calls it, it's it's a motivation it's it's if you see it even not as a feeling it's a noticing that suffering is present and having an intention to alleviate it you don't have to like the person you necessarily want to do that for but actually it's learning that you can love yourself and care for yourselves yourself because of your flaws not in spite of them so The line that I invite people to practice and say, even through gritted teeth sometimes, is when they screw up, they finish the sentence with, and I'm safe and I'm worthy of love and belonging. So then it becomes unconditional. Mm
0: -hmm. I love that, Helen. I love what you're saying and what you've said during the podcast. Unfortunately, we've (laughs) kind of almost (laughs) out of time so for a woman who is nervous you can sure talk
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: no i know i will put all your details um, in the comments about this podcast helen so Thank people you. can get in touch with you what you'll find is helen's using a, just a different language mm-hmm. for understanding your psychological nature and your spiritual nature and bringing that into harmony So that you can live a life well-lived instead of a life where you're constantly making judgments, you're thinking you're less than, you feel as though you have to fix, sort. And you can become aware and notice, noticing thought in action every single moment of the day and not beating yourself up about it. Recognize that, you know, there's kindness in the design and that kindness is allowing you to notice what feels right, what doesn't feel right. And I know that you all know what it feels like to be in flow, to be in essence, to be in a beautiful feeling. And I all know, and I know also that you know what it's like not to be in that feeling. So my invitation for you, again, is to notice when you self-soothe with food. When you're looking for a different feeling and recognize. Perhaps there's something fresh for you to see there. Helen, thank you so much for being a guest on the Unashamedly Human podcast. And Pleasure. I look forward to speaking with you again
1: soon. Okay, thank you.